some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Alberta Jones had always been the type to keep busy, but over the past six months, her life was even more hectic than usual. Ever since she had been appointed as a prosecutor to the Louisville Domestic Relations Court, the first female ever to serve in that role, she found herself juggling a lot. So when a friend asked her to swing by her house on August 5th, 1965, Alberta at first declined. But the friend, Gladys Wyckoff, was insistent. She had questions about a lawsuit, and man, what good is it to have a fancy-pants lawyer as a friend if you can't tap them for legal input now and then, right? In short, Gladys basically said, Come on, Alberta, I get that you're a big deal now, but you still have to make time for your friends. The guilt trip worked. Alberta agreed to swing by later that night. Before she left her house, her sister spotted Alberta sitting on the couch reading a magazine article about President John F. Kennedy's assassination nearly two years prior. Alberta told her sister, "Geez, I hope I don't get assassinated. Flora's response would forever haunt her. And I said, you don't worry about it. You're not the president of the United States. That night, on her way home from meeting her friend, Alberta Jones was accosted in her car, beaten over the head, and tossed unconscious into a river where she drowned. Nearly 60 years later, the death of the pioneering black woman, who was the first African-American to ever attend the University of Louisville Law School, remains unsolved. But, as we'll explore a bit later, it's definitely not forgotten. Alberta Jones was a Louisville lifer. Born November 12, 1930, in the southern Kentucky town situated on the Indiana border, she seemed destined for big things from birth. Thanks in no small part to her parents, Sarah Sadie Crawford and Odell Jones. Both Odell and Sadie had been born in Georgia, where each had reached the eighth grade before dropping out of school to start work. Odell served briefly in World War I. His service began less than a year before the war officially ended with the Treaty of Versailles in June of 1919. After he and Sadie got married, they moved to Kentucky and started a family that began with a son named Collier Jones in 1925. Their second son, Calvin Andrew, arrived two years later. Alberta, whose middle name was Odell in honor of her father, was the first of two girls born to the couple. They had their second daughter and last child, Flora, when Alberta was nearly six years old. Not long after that, the eldest son, Collier, died. I couldn't find a death certificate, so I don't know the cause, but it appears he died in 1939. Andrew is listed as the oldest son in the 1940 census. 
A decade later, in 1950, Odell still listed his occupation as 40-hour-a-week laborer, while mom Sadie had shifted from homemaker to cook-helper in a restaurant where she clocked some 54 hours per week. At this point, Andrew was out of the house, having already served a stint in World War II, while Alberta and Flora were 19 and 13, respectively, still living with their parents. The family unit had one more member, too. Sadie's father, James, lived with them and worked as a janitor in a foundry. By the sounds of it, the family worked hard and lived modestly, and it seems they had good reason. Whatever resources they had, they apparently apportioned to give the Jones children a leg up in the world, and it worked. None of the Jones kids were average students. Andrew's World War II draft card shows he had been working at the Treasury Department in its Bureau of Internal Revenue before the war started. Alberta, meanwhile, had attended Louisville Central High School and the Louisville Municipal College for Negroes, which in 1951 merged with the University of Louisville. She graduated third in class. This is one of her childhood friends speaking to PBS's Frontline. She was very, very dynamic and young and vibrant and did all the things that as a young child watching her that you would say, ooh, I want to be like that. In 1956, Alberta became the first African-American to attend the University of Louisville Law School, though that's not where she would get her degree. Before her second year, she transferred to Howard University School of Law in Washington, D.C., where she graduated fourth in her class in 1959. By this point, her father had died, but Alberta's mother, Sadie, was alive and proud as hell. Alberta could have stayed in D.C., but she told her friends and family she was needed elsewhere. She went back to Kentucky and showed up to take the Kentucky bar exam, where a secretary shared with her some unsettling news. Vincent Goodlett said, you know, you're the first quote-unquote Negro woman to ever take the Kentucky exam. Alberta later told a reporter that Goodlett's news had demoralized her at first. Quote, if I had known how much was depending on me, I would have studied harder, and I would have worn something different, end quote. Nevertheless, she passed and became the first black woman to get a Kentucky law license via the bar exam. Though she wasn't the first black woman to practice law in Kentucky, period, that honor went to Sally J. Seals White in 1904, 30 years before you had to pass an exam to practice. Anyway, back home in Kentucky, Alberta moved back to Louisville's majority black West End with her mother and, she said, turned down offers from several legal firms. Instead, she founded her own law practice and she landed a huge client. Our guest tonight is Cassius Clay, the fourth-ranked world heavyweight. Our question, what's it like to be a world-famous boxer? Uh, I have become so popular at this now until reporters, they don't say, are you going to win? They don't say, or how do you feel? Or, are you confident? They want to know what round am I going to knock him out in? So I must be awful great. Cassius Clay, if you don't know, would go on to change his name and become world champ Muhammad Ali. But before that, he was just a kid who lived in a Louisville neighborhood not far from Alberta. They knew each other well enough to say hello and give each other car rides here and there. 
So when Cassius was a rising star going pro, he hired Alberta Jones as his first attorney, and she drafted a contract for him that Frontline called ahead of its time. She's the one who actually wrote the fine printout to say, okay, sure, this is a great deal, but let's put away some of this kid's money so that he doesn't blow through it. This is journalist Co Bragg. You know, we have this vision of NBA players making it big and blowing all their money like in the first year or two of their contracts just because, you know, they're young kids with money. And so she kind of thought ahead of that. And this was decades and decades ago. This was a big deal. I mean, pictures of Ali Tabi signing the contract ran in newspapers nationwide in 1960. At just 30 years old, Alberta had negotiated a deal with 11 white millionaires who made up the Louisville sponsoring group. To make sure Cassius was prepping for the future, she insisted that 15% of his winnings be put into a trust that she co-signed and he couldn't reach until he turned 35. Today, that contract hangs on the wall of the Muhammad Ali Center in Louisville. It was around this same time that Alberta started getting involved in the civil rights movement in and around Louisville. They still had uh, restaurants uh, segregated that, you know, blacks couldn't go in and couldn't sit down and eat. They had even clothing stores, Stewart's, uh, Bicks in them that could buy them, but you couldn't try them out. So she came back to face a lot of segregation that Louisville had not changed. So... That triggered her because then she started to trying to write what she felt like was wrong. She said, we work here, we spend our money here, uh, you know, I pay taxes, so I need, I should be able to go where I want to go. She just believed that everybody should be treated the same. It shouldn't be based on the color of your skin. She wrote letters to the editors and op-ed pieces. The one that stands out in my mind is the one in which she she points at the the editors of the local paper for being hypocritical, for shaking their finger at Mississippi and Mississippi's brand of racism and not recognizing that Louisville was also segregated. And that piece, she eloquently blasted the Louisville Courier-Journal thusly, quote, For over three weeks, Negroes have been engaged in a struggle to obtain the right as American citizens to attend the downtown theaters. The exclusion of the Negro because of his race is a contradiction of democratic principles and a denial of a basic human right. The silence of the Courier-Journal has been conspicuous in view of the fact that it is so quick to cry shame when prejudice is practiced elsewhere. End quote. Insert the 1960 version of the mic drop gif here. Alberta was definitely drawing attention. Newspaper clips from the early 60s show she was routinely asked to give speeches at various clubs and events. And the venues weren't huge, a high school assembly here, a rec center there. But the talks helped raise her profile nonetheless. So did her voting advocacy. This is Houston attorney Dennis Sperling giving a talk about Alberta on his YouTube channel. She rented voting machines and held classes to teach African-Americans how to vote for candidates to their choice, of their choice. She established the Independent Voters Association and was an active member of the Louisville Urban League. 
Now, that might sound a little confusing in its specificity, so let me explain. Alberta was a registered Democrat, but she was not a fan of straight ticket voting. Her focus in these voting machine classes was to teach Black voters how to split their tickets so they could choose which candidate they supported, not just which party. Sister Flora remembers Alberta jokingly saying maybe she'd made a mistake on that front. And she said she messed up uh, pretty bad because she said, Lord, I, I, I did too good a job. She said, because here they got a, a Democrat governor and a Republican House. <laughs> she said, I really messed up. <laughs> you know. Jokes aside, the Independent Voters Association made a huge impact. It registered 6,000 African-Americans. Voting as a bloc, Black Louisvillians replaced the city's mayor and many of its aldermen in 1961. And two years after that, those new officials outlawed racial discrimination in businesses, which was the first public accommodation ordinance of its kind in the South. Alberta told the Courier-Journal that when she'd come home to Louisville from D.C., people told her, quote, You've got two strikes against you. You're a woman and you're a Negro, end quote. Alberta's reply was of the bring it on variety. Yeah, she said, but I've got one strike left and I've seen people get home runs when all they've got left is one strike. In hindsight, it's clear that not everyone shared her optimism. Alberta Jones's little sister, Flora, had always thought of her as more than just a sibling. Alberta was uh, my second mom. She was my friend. Actually, she was everything in my life. I could tell her things I couldn't tell other people. While Alberta's path took her to law school in D.C., Flora remained in Louisville, where she married a man named John Shanklin in the early 1950s, around the same time that her father Odell passed away. Even in a marriage that produced four children, Flora stayed close with Alberta. But the marriage didn't last. When Flora filed for divorce in 1961, citing gross neglect of duty, her husband was living some two hours north in Cincinnati, Ohio. Just as Alberta had served as a sort of second mother for her sister, she filled a similar role for her nieces and nephews. Auntie was fun. She just had a laughter about her. That was niece Vicki Skinner. Here's nephew Tony Shanklin. People called her a trailblazer, a pioneer. To us, she was just auntie. One reporter described Alberta as cheerful and outgoing, and you can see that in photos of her from the time. She was the type who would throw her head back to laugh and make everyone else in the room laugh along with her. But she was firm, too. After negotiating that contract for Muhammad Ali, she apparently didn't back down when he took issue with her $2,500 fee, which translates to some $25,000 in today's money. Well, it's a hefty chunk. Alberta told Ebony Magazine that it was still a bargain because her white colleagues told her she should have charged three times that amount. I mean, she negotiated a landmark contract that not only got the boxer a $10,000 bonus, But it was such a big deal that Ebony wrote an entire article about it and what it meant to Clay, the so-called biggest mouth in boxing, in March of 1963. 
1964, Alberta was appointed Louisville city attorney, marking the first time a woman of any race held the position. She made headlines again that year for the fundraising she did for James Bucky Welch, a seven-year-old boy who reached beneath the stop train to try to coax a four-month-old puppy out from under the train to safety. Just as Bucky's hands felt the warmth of the puppy's body, the locomotive suddenly lurched forward. The puppy initially was fine, but Bucky lost both of his arms below the elbows. I said initially about the dog, by the way, because in the saddest of postscripts, the dog apparently died before Bucky was released from the hospital. His aunt said the dog, whose name was Smokey, died of a broken heart. Anyway, the story of the boy's attempted good deed resonated with the public, appearing in newspapers nationwide. After Alberta was named chairwoman of a trust fund formed to cover the ongoing costs for Bucky's rehabilitation, she set a lofty $200,000 goal and got to raising funds. Within months, Bucky had a set of artificial limbs. Alberta was still promoting that fund when, in February of 1965, she left the city attorney job after being appointed to another post, this time as an assistant prosecutor for the Domestic Relations Court. Again, the first woman of any race to get the job. She was appointed to fill a vacancy left by Max Stoller, who had moved from that gig to become a prosecutor in jury court. Alberta's salary was set to be about $6,000 a year, which is on par with about $58,000 in today's money. Definitely a respectable living in 1968. Her sister Flora remembered being proud. When she got to be the first prosecutor, and I said, oh, you just keep on being number one, don't you? Then I started realizing that uh, it was something very special about it. The Courier-Journal ran a profile about Alberta in early March under the headline, Hard to Keep Up With, That's Alberta Jones. In the story, Alberta comes across as bookish but plucky, a self-described do-gooder who told the reporter, quote, you can't publish my age. If you put it in the paper, I'm a dead duck, end quote. It wasn't an omen. She was just joking because she was past 30 and still single. And in that day and age, Lord forbid, right? For the record, she was only 34. In the story, she said she didn't have time for a social life. In fact, she kept so busy, she couldn't even keep up with the few hobbies she had, like playing golf and tennis. She hadn't done either in two years, she said, adding that she had recently picked up bridge, but she'd probably drop that within a month, too. The one part of the story that in hindsight felt like an omen was the ending. It read, Just six years out of law school, a big dream Miss Jones has for the future is retirement. Quote, I love this work. I find it exciting, interesting, gratifying, but I still would like to retire in 15 years or so. This is hard work. Do you read about all those lawyers who drop dead at 50, at 45? Every time one drops dead, I take another pill, end quote. I'm not sure if by pill she meant Valium or vitamin, but either way, you can discern two big things about her personality from what she said there. One, that she's incredibly future-focused, which is supported by how she created trust funds for people like Muhammad Ali and Bucky Welch. And two, that she was thinking about mortality, 
planning ahead, trying to do whatever she could to live a long and healthy life. It's as though she knew a clock was ticking and was doing whatever was within her power to buy more time. It didn't work. The next time Alberta's name was in the Courier-Journal was August 6, 1965. The story began, quote, The body of Miss Alberta O. Jones, prosecuting attorney in Louisville Domestic Relations Court, was found about 10.35 a.m. yesterday in the Ohio River near Fontaine Ferry Park. Coast Guardsmen called to the scene recovered the body early yesterday afternoon. Deputy Coroner Charles Proctor said after an autopsy that the cause of death has not been determined and that chemical analysis and examination of brain tissues would be necessary. End quote. Within hours, though, a cause of death was officially ascribed. Alberta had drowned. Now, when she'd been pulled from the river, she wasn't immediately identified. She was a Jane Doe found fully dressed, save for shoes. But the pieces quickly started falling together around 1.30 p.m. that day when Alberta's mother, Sadie, called police, saying that her daughter had gone out to meet a friend the night before and never returned home. That initial news story, quoting police, said that Alberta had been home late August 4th when she got a telephone call from friend Gladys Wyckoff. At the top of the episode, I told you that Gladys wanted input on a lawsuit, but in this first story, Gladys supposedly told police that she called Alberta at 11.30 p.m. and asked her to swing by to try on a wig that Alberta had previously ordered. According to Gladys, Alberta drove over either to Gladys's home or to a beauty salon, I don't know which because the story says both in different spots, tried on the wig, and then went to a restaurant with Gladys to eat sandwiches. After eating, they supposedly went back to Gladys's house, talked for a bit, and Alberta went home about 1.30 a.m. She was supposedly still wearing the wig when she left, though no wig was found near her body. Reading this first story, it feels like the reporter writing it, whom I can't name check because there's no byline, had a sense that this was nefarious from the start because they made a point to knock out two theories right away by pointing out this likely wasn't a robbery because Alberta never wore jewelry, not even a watch. And also, it wasn't likely she jumped into the river to drown herself because she was happy in her work and had a lot of friends. The day after Alberta's body was retrieved from the river, her car was discovered abandoned in Louisville's West End. Inside the car, investigators found blood stains on the rear seat, on the floor of the rear seat, and on the back of the front seat. Police also found an upper denture plate that Alberta had worn, plus pieces of brick on the back seat, too. Any doubts about Alberta's manner of death were erased with these findings. It was clear she had been murdered. After Alberta Jones' death, Louisville police reportedly launched an exhaustive investigation, interviewing hundreds of friends, family members, co-workers, and potential witnesses. They told reporters that a store owner said Alberta had stopped at his shop at 28th and Broadway for soft drinks. That would have been after Gladys said Alberta had left her house. At least one other witness reported hearing a woman screaming in a car on a street close to that convenience store. 
Alberta's shoes were eventually found near the Sherman Mitten Bridge, leading investigators to theorize that she had been walking back to her car from the convenience store when she was accosted, forced into the back seat while she screamed, bashed in the head with a brick, and then thrown unconscious from the bridge into the river where she drowned. Police apparently pursued a lot of possible angles on a motive, like for having been targeted by a disgruntled client or maybe someone burned in a real estate deal gone wrong that she'd been part of. Another theory pursued in the 1960s was that she was killed by the Nation of Islam because its leader, Elijah Muhammad, coveted the 15% of Muhammad Ali's earnings that were in a trust Jones managed. According to the New York Times, a detective working the case at the time who was interviewed by the police in the 1980s said that when he was pursuing this angle, his wife's life was threatened, but there's never been anything solid substantiating a connection. There was one more theory, though, that Alberta was targeted because maybe she was gay. The police use, like, very offensive language to describe what they assumed to be lesbian relationships that she was in. But I also imagine a world in which if you are helping women with divorces, for example, that, yeah, you may be meeting late at night and that there were some people who thought that was suspicious. Interestingly, the only avenues the police didn't seem keen on investigating were motives related to Alberta's activism and her race. Police sent 34 possible clues, including clothing and fingerprints, to the FBI for analysis. I should mention here that it so happened Alberta wasn't driving her own car the night she died. Her car was in the shop, so she had a rental car, which made the investigation process a little bit trickier because it introduced the possibility that evidence found inside the car might have been left by a previous renter. Regardless, the FBI didn't pull anything useful from the clues they analyzed at the time. Anyway, a story that ran in June of 1966, so 10 months after the murder, reported that two men had at one point been considered prime suspects, so much so that a grand jury was impaneled to hear the evidence against them, but the jury decided there wasn't enough evidence to return an indictment. The story read, quote, the police have been unable to come up with a motive for the slaying. It is possible that someone whom Miss Jones prosecuted in court could have held a grudge and killed her, end quote. Which is worth considering because Alberta's job put her at risk for making powerful enemies. As prosecutor of the Domestic Relations Court, her job largely centered on charging men with assaulting their wives. That wasn't everything she did, of course. She also looked into cases of suspected child abuse. But a good chunk of the cases she prosecuted were against white men who didn't have great reputations when it came to how they treated any women, much less women of color. Police at the time acknowledged this, but they also said Alberta could have pissed off someone in her private life, or maybe she was even killed by someone wanting to steal the wig she had tried on, seeing as how the wig never turned up. Of course, that seems ludicrous, but either way, police chief William Bidner said he would pursue the case until it was solved and pointed to a $1,500 reward as incentive for someone with information to step forward. No one ever got that reward. The leads at first still trickled in, 
Three years after Alberta's murder, for example, someone finally found her purse hanging from the same bridge where her shoes had been discovered. But soon the leads petered out, and the case went cold. Periodically, Flora would call up the various agencies handling it and ask for updates, but there never were any. Until 2008, when someone took another look at the fingerprints that had been sent to the FBI. PBS's Frontline again. Decades later, it turns out, the FBI still had copies of those prints. After receiving a phone call from Flora in early 2008, a detective from the police department took a look at the case. He asked the FBI to run the prints again, and for the first time, they got a name. Who turns out to be the match? The now 60-something-year-old man had been 17 years old at the time of the murder. Journalist Co. Bragg. Once they get this positive match back, the detective flies out to Orange County, California to sit down with, you know, this guy. The interview was recorded, and there's a transcript in the case file. He swore that, like, he didn't know Alberta and that, like, it doesn't really make sense for his fingerprint to turn up in her car. Um, you know, it was a rental car. And so he was like, I don't, you know, I was much younger than she was. Like, you know, Alberta was in her 30s when she was killed. And he would have been 17 at the time. And so he was like, there's no reason why I would have been around her. Maybe I brushed up against the car at one point because he used to hang around like a park that was near her house or something like that. After the interview, the man agreed to be polygraphed which he was told indicated that he was being deceptive in some of his answers. But there's a reason that those tests aren't universally considered reliable. Either way, things in the case went quiet for two years until Flora received a letter from the state prosecutor saying his office would not pursue the case any further, not now or at any time in the foreseeable future. The letter laid out its reasons, that most witnesses were deceased where their locations were unknown, that all the evidence was missing, that the polygraph of the man with the fingerprint match couldn't be used in court. Not only that, but the letter said, hey, the FBI didn't keep clear records indicating where the evidence tech had pulled the one fingerprint match to this California dude, so we don't know if it came from outside of the car or inside, which obviously would make a difference. And we can't even ask the evidence tech on the off chance they'd be able to remember because that person has since died. This letter sent in 2010 sparked some newspaper stories. And I noticed something kind of interesting in the narrative at this point. When the story reappeared in the press, the reason for Gladys Wyckoff's late night summons had shifted. I don't know if this is based on solid investigatory information or if it's a reporting mistake that's since been accepted as fact. But from 2010 on, the story about Alberta's reason for visiting Gladys that night changed from being about a wig she had bought to being about a lawsuit Gladys was filing. In 2017, the story slightly shifted again, this time saying that Alberta went to talk to Gladys about a lawsuit specifically against another beautician. Either way, Shanklin said that Alberta hadn't wanted to go out that night, but that Gladys had guilt-tripped her into it. Shanklin told a reporter in 2017, quote, Gladys knew how to rattle her chain. Gladys told her, since you have this job, you got uppity. Because Alberta was well-educated, she didn't want her friends to think she had gotten uppity, end quote. Alberta's mother worried about her going out so late and offered to tag along to meet Gladys. 
but Alberta declined, saying she'd be fine. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering hardcore about Gladys. Might she have lured Alberta out of the house late at night to give someone an opportunity to attack? It seems a fair question, but one thing repeatedly reported over the decades is that police interviewed Gladys time and time and time again and never suspected her for what that's worth. She died in 2017. But that doesn't mean all hope is lost in this case. Also in 2017, the feds reopened the Jones case with funding from the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act, which provides $13 million annually to the Department of Justice, the FBI, and U.S. state and local law officials to investigate and prosecute pre-1970 murders. That dovetailed with activism by Lee Remington, a professor at Bellarmine University in Louisville who had begun researching Alberta's case as a possible book topic in the early 2010s. Then I got a copy of the case file, and that's when I realized it was more than just a book project. Soon, she was urging local and federal investigators to take another look, saying, quote, I do believe that she was killed because of the work that she was involved in, end quote. In fact, Alberta had apparently told her mother shortly before her death that she was thinking about quitting the prosecutor job because she thought some of her colleagues there were up to shady business. Remington and Flora Shanklin, Alberta's sister, worked together to get a giant banner featuring Alberta's portrait hung on a bank building on Muhammad Ali Boulevard. It's alongside other prominent people with Louisville roots, like Diane Sawyer, Colonel Sanders, Jennifer Lawrence, and, of course, Muhammad Ali. The idea was that maybe seeing Alberta's face might trigger someone with information to finally step forward, a hope only bolstered by the Crime Act money that allowed investigators to reopen the case. I can't say whether new information has definitely been uncovered, but I can leave you with this. I emailed Professor Remington to ask for an interview for this episode. She said not yet. She was about to turn over more evidence to the DOJ and wanted to wait until that was done before talking about it. So my fingers are crossed that someday I'll be able to revisit this episode with an update. As Remington said, Alberta spent her whole life fighting for others. It seems only fitting that nearly 60 years after her death, Some people are still fighting for her. To research this story, I had help from journalist Amanda Rossman, my partner in crime over at Grab Bag Collab, where we host a show for Patreon subscribers called The Catalyst. I also am indebted to contemporary news reports, as well as more recent revisits of the case, most notably PBS's Frontline and some stories by The Courier-Journal and The New York Times. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. 
Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.